the sixth chapter of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter six. And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains and the mountains were mountains of brass. In the first chariot were red horses and in the second chariot black horses and in the third chariot white horses and in the fourth chariot grizzled and bay horses. Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. The black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them, and the grizzled go forth toward the south country. And the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Then cried he upon me, and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, even of Hadiah, of Tobijah, and of Jedidiah, which are come from Babylon, and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua and the son of Jesedek, the high priest. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of this his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory and shall set and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the counsel of peace shall be between them and both. And the crown shall be to Helium and to Tobijah and to Jedua and to Hen, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you, and this shall come to pass, if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. The title of our brother John's remarks are The Ultimate Triumph. At this time, we'll give our attention to Brother John. Okay, how's that? We coming through? Good to see everyone this evening. It's wonderful, as some of the other brothers have said, to be here to be able to address you as brothers and sisters in Christ, to talk about the one shared hope that we all have, the shared hope that we possess, that we we all have, like we said, from coast to coast. Um, we come together in places like the Bible school and see each other. Truly, is a wonderful thing. On behalf of the rest of us from New Mexico, I'd like to 
again thank the committee for uh, having us here and also, I'd like to thank Brother Tommy for asking me to, to speak tonight. Tonight, uh, what I'd like to do is go through the sixth chapter of Zechariah. And when we first read it, as Brother Joe read tonight, we see lots of prophetic symbols. We see lots of, uh, um, of wording that we understand as prophetic principles that, uh, that we apply to not only Zechariah, but other uh, other prophecies as well. In this prophecy, we'll see the gospel preached. We see the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And how often, brethren, do we turn to different scriptures, different sets of prophecy like this, and we see that golden thread of truth from Genesis to Revelation, and we see how it all fits together, and it makes sense. There's no confusion. One principle ties with another principle. And upon this, it strengthens our faith. And that's why we're here tonight. This week, as a matter of fact. We're here this week to strengthen our faith. Bible schools, exhortations, gatherings. We come together to strengthen this prophetic vision that we have. Prophetic spiritual perception. From Proverbs, the 29th verse, I'm sorry, the 28th verse, 29th chapter, the 18th verse, we see that it mentions that where there is no vision, the people perish. So we come together to study things like this prophecy in Zechariah, as we said, to strengthen our spiritual perception of what is in store for those that love God, for what He has in store for those who seek to follow Him. We see from this particular verse the word vision. And this is Strong's word number 2372, which means to gaze at, to mentally perceive, to contemplate with pleasure, it says, to behold, to look, to prophesy, to provide, and to see. So as we go through our study this evening in the sixth chapter of Zechariah, let's keep this definition of vision in our mind. And let's... Let's see how, with vision, we are certain not to perish, right? It's 1 Samuel 3 and 1, And the word of the Lord was precious in those days, because there was no open vision. Well, it's the same way with us, isn't it, brethren? The word of the Lord is truly precious to us. The most important thing we can possess in this life. It can build our spiritual perception, which again, as we mentioned, leads to this vision of the future. Young people, you are the next generation of speakers, of teachers, of committee members, and so on. One of these days, you will be here exhorting us. One of these days, you will be on a committee organizing a Bible school, organizing uh, an ecclesia, perhaps. And all of this starts with building our faith line upon line, and precept upon precept. We come together this week to study our doctrine. And we've talked about doctrine already this week so far. To have fellowship with each other. And as the Spirit instructed the Ecclesia in Sardis, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, 
to strengthen the things that remain. And let's look at that for just a minute. To strengthen. And again, as we dig into this word, we see that strengthen comes from a word that means to stand or to take a stand. To abide, to bring, to continue, to covenant, establish, hold up, set up, a staunch stand. And it's also likened to the word, uh, the stiff, solid, stable, steadfast, strong, and sure. So this is what they were commanded to do, to strengthen the things that remained. And remember in our study with the, the ecclesia there at, uh, at Sardis, they had lost things already. They had lost so much. And yet the Spirit was encouraging them to strengthen what little bit they had left. So we understand that it's important for all of us, we're never too old and we're never too young, to diligently study and build our faith and build our character as we work out our salvation. This is why we're here this week. And why do these elements that we strengthen mean so much to us? Because these elements we're discussing are able to make a person with a proper understanding who seeks to please his Heavenly Father as a child of God, it's able to make us wise unto salvation, which leads to our ultimate purpose of God manifestation, the glorifying of our everlasting Heavenly Father, the reason we're created to be here on this earth. Why do we talk about this now? Because in this prophecy that we're studying tonight, we see principal elements of salvation that are brought to us, again, that, that strengthen us, that help us to understand this gospel message. Lessons like the vision that we have here in Zechariah are core beliefs and are what set us apart from modern Christianity, the world that we live in. In this study, then, a little brief history of the book of Zechariah, we saw that Zechariah had seven night visions. And these visions began with one where he saw Zion. And it, it was, well, as mentioned here in, the, in our list, Zion sees prosperity. The next vision he had, he saw four craftsmen, and all of these pertaining, uh, these visions pertaining to Israel and how they were progressing toward the end times, the times that we live in now. The third vision, Jerusalem's downtreading and how it was to be limited. A change of clothing for the high priest is listed in chapter 3. The whole earth illuminated by divine light. The flight of the storks. And this was the development of apostasy, the false religion. The Judaizing influence had crept in. And tonight we see the four chariots and the mountains of brass in this sixth chapter. And it finishes this section of Zechariah with the coronation of the high priest, Joshua. So just by that title, you can see where we're going with this and how this, uh, as we said, is is a fundamental principle uh, of our doctrine and our beliefs. By this study of this chapter, we'll see a sequence of events that unfolds that again solidifies how the last days will come about. What happens to Israel? What happens to us? When is the judgment? When is the kingdom established? 
when does Christ become king? These are all brought here for us in this chapter. We see here that in this chapter, this vision, the prophet sees four chariots going forth, as Brother Joe read. And they come between two mountains of brass. And he's told that they represent the four spirits of the heavens which go forth from standing before the Lord. The chariots are shown in the state of activity, going forth, it says. And instead of the two branches that were mentioned in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 12 representing those called out of the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, these are four chariots identifying this with the true Israel of God. And as we go through this, we see the chapter then concludes with this coronation of Joshua. So to begin, we see Zechariah turn, and he lifts up his eyes, and he looks, and he beholds. Remember our definition of vision. He turned... And he looked. This is the same here for Zechariah. This can be applied to us as we turn the cares of this world, we turn from the cares of this world, where men run to and fro, their knowledge is increased, but their spiritual perception is dulled by the hype of the moment. But we, in the spirit of hope and anticipation, read these words and translate our minds in spiritual vision, to contemplate with pleasure. Remember our vision definition. To contemplate with pleasure the things that Yahweh has in store for those that love Him. Now, Zechariah looked, and this comes from a word which means to consider, to discern, to make, to enjoy. See, this is completely different than just a haphazard glance, isn't it? He turned and he looked at it. And he saw these four chariots. John Thomas mentions to us on page 76 of Eureka, volume 1, that these four chariots are the cherubim of glory. Now, you'll have to follow me here because we're going between chariots and cherubim, as Dr. Thomas brings out. These constitute the chariot of Yahweh, he says. David styles them in 1 Chronicles 28, 18 as the chariot of the cherubim. The Spirit of Yahweh rested in the form of a cloud between and upon their wings, alluding to this cherubic incumbency of the Spirit, he says. David says in Psalm 80, verse 1, to the chief musician upon Shoshina Eduth, a psalm of Asaph, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubim, Shine forth. Shine forth. So between the cherubim, as he continues, he says this, between the cherubim were the typical throne of Yahweh in Jerusalem. Let the reader peruse these chapters, speaking of Ezekiel's chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10, in connection with the Apocalypse, chapter 4 and 5, And he will find that the cherubim are representative of the spirit corporalized and manifested in the saints, the Elohim of Israel, the one eternal spirit 
in multitudinous manifestation. Think of that. The Spirit corporalized and manifested in the saints. Brothers and sisters, that's us. What a wonderful hope we look forward to. Us, the Elohim of Israel, the one eternal Spirit in multitudinous manifestation. Now, if we can't get excited about that, then there's something wrong. These represent the resurrected saints in the execution of the judgments that's written. This is the work that we're set out to do, brothers and sisters. If found faithful at the judgment seat of Christ, this will be the next job that's set out for us to do, to accomplish. It mentions here that whithersoever the Spirit was to go, they went, they ran, and they returned as a flash of lightning, it says. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of great waters, as the voice of mighty ones in their going, the voice of speech, as the noise of a camp. Zechariah's four chariots are identical, says Dr. Thomas, with these. They represent the resurrected saints in the execution of the judgment written. Again, that's from Eureka, Volume 1, page 76. Now, a little side note, in considering the chariot, I found this picture, which I thought was interesting, the modern Israeli chariot, the Merkov 4, and this is the main battle tank that Israel uses today. And according to this here, it says that this word, Merkov, is from the Hebrew word for chariot. It's a little side note, but I thought that was interesting. In Phanerosis, we have on page 67, he says, To us then there is but one power, the Father, out of whom are all, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus anointed, on account of whom are all, and we through him. All this development of an earthborn family of the sons of God who shall take their stand in the universe, in the universe as the cherubim of glory, is through and on account of Jesus Christ. He is the foundation, the chief and precious cornerstone of this new manifestation of the Father Spirit. The sons of power, spirits born of spirit, Israel's Elohim, or mighty ones, who were once Jews and Gentiles in unprofitable flesh, sinners under the sentence of death, but justified by an intelligent and obedient faith. These are the Elohim of the Shema Yisrael, meaning hear, O Israel, the hypostasis, or the substance, the expressed image, of whom is the one Yahweh, the one eternal spirit, multitudely manifested in the sons of of eternal power. Again, think of that. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about the opportunity that lies before us. Each and every one of us could make up part of this. What a wonderful vision we have before us. And so we see a vision of the goal set before us to do our best, to strive, to work, to build the kind of character that our Father might see fit and useful in His kingdom. Of course, this only is available through our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And as we learn from Ephesians 2, verse 12 through 16, But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who formerly were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. 
the opportunity that we see before us is only availed by coming in contact with the blood of Christ. As we continue, we see these four chariots mentioned. They're four for a specific reason. The number four points to order in Israel, the camp of spiritual Israel, which is now, at the time of this vision, uh, fulfilled, is made up of true the true commonwealth of all of Israel. Four are here because this is the military organization of Israel. In the wilderness, Israel marched in four companies with the standards of the leading tribes flying as the heads of each section. And as we see, Judah on the east as the lion, Reuben on the south as the man, Ephraim on the west as the ox, and Dan on the north as the eagle. This is also identified with the four faces of the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant, and the four living creatures in Ezekiel's vision that we mentioned earlier, as well as four living creatures that are mentioned in Revelation in the Apocalypse. And so again, we see how Scripture ties together. These aren't intelligible, unintelligible uh, visions. This isn't reserved for only the clergy to try to understand and delve into and to explain. This is for us, brothers and sisters, to look into and to look to, to grab a hold of and understand the wonderful hope that lies within it. For this reason, then, Zechariah's four chariots are termed the four winds or spirits of the heavens, directing our minds to those whom it is the Father's good pleasure to give unto them the kingdom of God, to the resurrected and to the glorified saints who are filled then with divine power to execute the purpose of Yahweh in the earth. These aren't literal horses in this vision, but they're meant to convey the idea of being warlike or militant, as is written. These chariots are seen coming, as we read, out between these mountains of brass. Again, we're still in the first part of verse 1. Behold, there came four chariots out between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. From this now we look into these mountains, and we see Zechariah's vision here in chapter 6 is related to Daniel's latter day, king of the north and king of the south, mentioned in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. Also, verses 7 through 5, which we don't necessarily have time to look up. But we see these two fit parallel together. And in our study of mountains, we see that a mountain represents a nation or an empire. A nation or an empire. A mountain was seen previously by Zechariah in chapter 4, verse 14. And this came from Strong's number 2042, meaning to loom up, which indicates to us an overshadowing force as it appears an impressively great or an exaggerated form, it says. And I was kind of thinking of, of back home, those of you that have been to, to New Mexico, you know how flat and deserty it is. Where we live in the valley, the basin of New Mexico, of where Alamogordo is, we have mountains on the left and mountains on the right kind of slow, gradual hills that, that grow slowly. But up in the north part, we have a huge mountain called Sierra Blanca. And as you're coming up from El Paso, it kind of looks like a, a higher hill in the distance. But as you grow closer and closer, by the time you get to the city that we live in, 
it's a huge mountain there that, that practically overshadows the basin that we live in. And that kind of has the vision in my head of what we're talking about here, this mountain looming up, as it says, as an impressively great or exaggerated form. Those of you from Colorado understand the same thing. Huge, gigantic mountains. Here in Zechariah chapter 4, the mountain represents those who opposed the laborers of Zerubbabel. And again, this was the time when they had returned from Babylon in captivity. They had returned back to the land. They were rebuilding their temple. They were rebuilding their homes. They were trying to regain their life as it was before their captivity. And here Zerubbabel was leading this rebuilding of the temple. But they had opposition. They were surrounding, surrounded by nations and people who tried to obstruct them, to knock them off their course. And again, as prophetical types work, we see this prefigures the opposition that will be raised from the powers of darkness, the world that, see, that, that is present at the setting up of the kingdom at Christ's return. In Jeremiah 51, 25, and 26, a great mountain represented Babylon, as well as in Revelation 17, 5, representing its modern counterpart as Rome and its systems in the earth. This great mountain before Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel here is a type of the Lord Jesus, was to become a plain. This mountain became a plain or a level flat place, no longer an obstruction but it became a way to pass over or pass through. So no longer was it an obstruction, but it became a pathway. And so these mountains here in chapter 6 are brass, as it says. And brass is used as a symbol of the flesh, right? The symbol of the flesh. As well, brass is used as the kingdom of Greece in the image prophecy of Daniel chapter 2, as these thighs we see in this image that's before us. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 2, we have the realm of Grisha that's mentioned as represented here. We understand that this developed into related yet antagonistic powers, as Dr. Thomas calls them, that would contend for the Holy Land in the latter days. And here in Daniel, they're identified as the king of the north, and the king of the south, Assyria, and Egyptian powers expressed at the time of our Lord's return. The latter-day powers of the north and the south will be headed by this Russian latter-day Assyrian or Gogian, the Anglo-American confederacies, including Sheba, Dedan, the young lions, the merchants of Tarshish, all as mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38, which will comprise these two mountains of brass. And it will be when these two great confederacies grow to their climax in all their power that these four chariots of the Spirit shall go forth from between them to bring mankind under Christ's rule. Every difficulty will be overcome and the truth would triumph in the Lord. Peace, a situation or circumstance when truth prevails, will then be present. Once the mountains that are this Gogian confederacy is defeated and the kingdom secured under the first phase 
of the military operations that we see. The nation of Israel will be the base and the throne from which the everlasting gospel will go forth. Then these four chariots will go forth in their second phase to subdue the rest of the entire earth. They stand first by the ruler of the earth, awaiting their divine orders, as we've read. These are described in other places as the four and the twenty elders, the four living creatures full of eyes before and behind, the redeemed of every nation, people, and tongue, the 144,000. All of these are linked together with this idea of multitudinous redeemed. Once on the move, Ezekiel says they are as the noise of many waters, as a multitude of people. And so we notice here in Zechariah 6 that these, cha- these chariots go forth, or they go north, excuse me, where Israel's most powerful and ruthless enemies are found. And considering these enemies, we think of the beast associated with Western Europe, isn't it? We see the dragon, which is related to Eastern Europe or Russia. And we see these are brought together by the false prophet or the apostate system of religion. The most powerful and ruthless enemies found on the earth at the time of our Lord's return. This corresponds to Revelation chapter 16, 19, where it says, And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give to her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every isle fell away, and the mountains were not found. And so here then we see this bursting forth of this vengeance of righteous judgment by Christ and the saints. These become the final campaigns of these four charioteers that we see here in the sixth chapter of Zechariah, Christ and this Cherubic army. In reading through here, we see that the black horse speaks of judgment upon this evil corruption of this northern host, while the white horse has the idea of leprosy. But we see the grizzled horses going toward the south, where the nations seem to be more susceptible to the divine influence at first. Grizzled has the idea of spotted. It says spotted to hail in one dictionary. The outpouring of judgments which will bring the people to conform to the divine laws and the precepts. This is all executed by these horsemen. Only the north and the south are mentioned because the two mountains will incorporate as a confederacy in some form or another the entire world at the time of the end. Armageddon. The bay horse seems to be identified with this red horse in verse 2. The Strong's word for this uh, bay is number 554, and it actually refers to a stronger color, it says. A stronger color. And since red, the red horse is not mentioned as that anywhere else in this particular chapter, we could probably conclude that this bay horse is actually the red one, but now even of a much stronger color, possibly a brighter red, if you will, because we see the mission now, as explained in this verse of the bay horses, suggests that they are to search out or to strive after the last remnants 
of the resistance against Christ and the saints. They're to go and search out those who are organizing this resistance. These chariots are now bringing their labors to a successful completion as the army of Christ goes forth in every direction to complete this wonderful work of conquest. Those that have had the specific duty of bringing into subjection those in the north country will now finally establish the rulership of Yahweh as a triumphant shout or cry, as rendered in the King James Version, goes out, proclaiming loudly that warfare is over and the millennium is about to commence. Again, back to Eureka, Volume 1. Thus, Zion's four chariots finally overthrow her enemies and consecrate their commerce to Yahweh and their wealth to the ruler of all the earth. Another reason for this we see in Ezekiel 38, verse 16. And I will bring thee against my land, that the heathen may know me, when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. They will see the desolation of Gog and understand just who has accomplished it. The worldwide declaration of peace now is heard throughout the earth, beginning at the north country and expanding globally. Finally, the global governance that we as believers have been waiting for will be established. Imagine, brethren, the drastic change that has to take place. No longer will people everywhere And truly, it's everywhere. People are preoccupied with greed, indulgence, self-satisfaction, entertainment. Everything that you can imagine is taking their time away from serving or even thinking about their Creator. But the world would begin to be cleansed from man's selfishness, his ungodliness, and his inhumanity to man. All populations will now live in peace and safety as the focus of mankind as Yahweh's creation will be turned now turned now to the newly established administration of Christ and his redeemed who will now rule as kings and priests the lesson that we've studied so far is a doctrine exclusive to Christadelphians for over 160 years the hope of the kingdom the elpis israel This is a foundational principle, a doctrine, which is established throughout Scripture, not just in a few hand-picked places, but as this golden thread we've talked about that's woven through from Genesis to Revelation. And so as we continue in this chapter, we see more of this. We see the full vision of the future and what role now that our Lord and Master is destined to fulfill as king-priest in the future age. We believe the days to come soon will usher in this new age or new world order of things which will be the end of Gentile rule, the domination by evil and wickedness, and the new beginning with the righteous reign of our Master. Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. 
And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge among the nations and will rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Again, what a blessed hope we have before us. Again, in our study, I'll mention once again that we see the sequence of events laid out specifically in connection with the rest of Scripture. The tenor of Scripture lays out the return of Christ, the judgment of the household, the subduing of the nations, the establishment of His throne in Zion. And so as we see, we continue in this chapter, verses 9 through 15 of Zechariah, is what we believe to be a type of the exaltation of Christ to this throne in Zion. A type, a vision of this future. And in this, we see a crown placed upon his head as he finally then becomes king of the world. The vision of the four chariots going into all the earth and the spirit of Yahweh being quieted because of the victories being won fittingly conclude the night visions that were seen by Zechariah. This seventh vision takes the the prophet to the epoch of the seventh millennium when the Yahweh's, when for Yahweh, Yahweh's oath's sake, Israel shall be saved and the nations subjected under Christ. Verse 10 of this chapter 6 begins not a new vision, but now the prophetic word given to be acted out as a living parallel to a time that was yet future. So if you're following me here, you see that Zechariah was in, in vision, seeing these other the process that we, we saw going through. But now, he is awakened out of this, and he's to act this out. He's to actually take the elements that are before us here and to act out uh, this parallel. On awakening from his dream, the angel gives important instructions to Zechariah, which are, as we stated, an enacted parable, and it's lesson, and it dramatizes the purpose of God. As a brief overview of this section of Zechariah, we see he is told to accept the gifts that are offered by these certain exiles that are coming back from Babylon and invite them to witness the coronation of Joshua, the magnificent high priest. He would be called the branch, we see, as we get to verse 12. And he would grow out of his place and he will build the temple of Yahweh. And by this, he will combine in himself the dual offices of of king and priest. Within these instructions given, we're given specifics of how a crown of ringlets is to be made out of the precious metals that are offered. And then it is to be set upon the head of this high priest. All of this would doubtless be carried out as was specifically instructed. But what did it all mean? Did Zechariah and the brethren then Did they really understand what it all meant? Well, as Christadelphians do, we look deeper 
into the, into the words and the phrases, and we compare them to what we already know about Scripture. Bringing, beginning then with the word captivity, we see Zechariah was to accept of them these gifts from those who were the captivity, those who were coming back into the land. We understand that what is inferred here is that these men who were returning prisoners of war, those who were taken alive to Babylon, had now returned out of gratitude and in thanksgiving, were offering gifts of their free will to be used in worship. We understand from this principle that these men typified true Israelites who leave the spiritual darkness and the depravity of Babylon for association now with the truth, who bring their gifts of tried faith, of dedication, obedience to the Christ altar as their free will offering. So let's compare these gifts of these men to what we know from Isaiah 60, verse 9 to 11. It says, Surely the isle shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first, to bring thy sons from far, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord thy God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister to thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be opened continually. They shall not shut day nor night, that men may bring to thee the forces of the Gentiles, that their kings may be brought. This is a prophecy, brethren, of a time when the isles, the ships of Tarshish first, will then support Israel and help their people back into the land. Unlike what we see taking place today, it's the opposite, isn't it? Even the nations that the nation that we live in now, who we thought was in support of Israel, day by day seems to be quickly turning their back against the people of God, severing their ties to Israel in the name of peace and compromise in the Middle East. But here we see in our vision that these gifts are brought by these men who are named Helda, meaning lasting or durable, Tobijah, meaning Yah is good, and Jediah, meaning Yah knoweth. The meaning of these names gives added significance then when we look in and search and see what they mean because to the verse that we've read now from the Septuagint, we see that it means that it says to take the things of the captivity from the chief men and from the useful men and from them that have understood it. Now, isn't that interesting how those names fit with the Septuagint translation? After taking these gifts, Zechariah was to go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. And here, Josiah means Yah heareth. Zephaniah means Yah hath hidden. So Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, can be understood to mean that Yahweh heareth him who is filled with that which he hath hidden. So these men and their names had a specific pur purpose to convey to us this deeper meaning. In other words, brothers and sisters and young people, it requires the deliberate action 
of worthy men and women to discover the presence of the Almighty and to strive to obtain a clearer vision or understanding of His eternal purpose. To strive to attain a clearer vision or understanding of His eternal purpose. Doesn't this fit with our description of study so aptly presented this morning by our brother? So we come to understand then that these men who Zechariah was to gather together were typical men and their names had a significance in this enacted parable that Zechariah was carrying out. These were men of faith who left Babylon because of the call of God. And so they would typify every man or woman, Jew or Gentile, who separates themselves from his environment in order that they might worship the Almighty in spirit and in truth. The whole reason then behind why Zechariah was to accept these gifts then was for the purpose of appointing Joshua, the high priest, to his duty. Silver and gold were taken to make crowns, and as we know, these metals have a great significance in Scripture. As silver was collected in this way from the people, it emphasized its connection with redemption, to make an atonement for your souls. Yet silver cannot redeem anything or anyone of itself apart from the law. A ransom cannot be paid in the form of wealth. It required that life should be given. And so as we read in 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain course of life, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter earlier in this chapter compares gold, which we see the other metals brought as a gift to the tabernacle. He compares this to faith that is tried, as we see in verse 7 of chapter 1, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than that of gold that perisheth, though tried with fire might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Revelation 3:18. Buy of me gold tried in the fire. Gold tried in the fire. These gifts in a spiritual way must be offered by us for the beautifying of the spiritual temple that Christ is preparing. Offering ourselves as a faithful, dedicated believer These are materials for crowns. And as we see this meaning for crowns, it's pronounced atar, I believe. To encircle, to crown, to compass, a crown. And it's thought that this plural word, crowns, probably describes several circlets that make up this singular crown on the head of Joshua. And this, of course, was worn by kings, but not by priests. Priests were mitres, as we're familiar with from uh, Exodus chapter 28, verse 4. For a king to wear a crown is a symbol of glory and respect, not exactly fitting for a priest, unless we're speaking of Christ himself as this future king priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is no normal crown and no average priest by any means. Again, to examine this crown, 
It's rendered as a singular crown, but evidently it was formed of several circlets. And so becoming plural in form, we compare this to the scripture in Revelation chapter 19, 12, where it says, His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. This refers to the same thing, namely these circlets, each indicating a further victory woven into this crown and what it represented. So the crown to be made for Joshua celebrated the triumph on a worldwide scale. It was a single crown made up of several circlets, even as Christ is set forth as the victor first over sin and death by his obedience and the things that he suffered, gaining the victory first for himself over sin and death, and then opening the way and the opportunity for his brethren. These crowns are referred to in the New Testament in several different ways. The crown of life, as in James chapter 1. A crown of righteousness. A crown of glory, 1 Peter 5 and 4. These are like circlets in this plural crown that the Lord figuratively wears. And they point as a lesson to us of his threefold ministry. His threefold ministry. A crown of life on the earth as a prophet and then suffering as sacrifice when his victory opened the way of life. The second is a crown of righteousness in heaven as our great high priest where he intercedes on behalf of his brethren. And finally, a crown of glory, a crown of glory in the future age when he will make known the power of the gospel as he assumes the throne of his father David as king priest in Zion. And so as an overview of this portion of our study then, we see Joshua was a priest, yet he was crowned with a crown reserved for kings. The Lord Jesus is now our great high priest and is yet to be acknowledged as the king. These two offices will be combined in him when he returns and takes up this great position with authority from the Almighty Father to reign over all mankind. Jesus will be high priest after the order of Melchizedek, then being both king of righteousness and king of peace. Hebrews 7, verse 2. The words are then spoken in our next verses. Behold the man whose name is the branch. Verse 12. The very words, behold the man. Doesn't this remind us of what Pilate said when he led Jesus out, presenting him as the king of the Jews, crowned mockingly with this circlet of thorns? But the nation that rejected him then will then, in the future, look upon him whom they've pierced and mourn with the great mourning. Then they will welcome his deliverance with great joy. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee. Send now 
prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. His name is the branch, or as the Hebrew word means, sprout. And this is different from Isaiah 11, which says, which, which means a shoot, but is used in various places as a sprout. And we see here as the branch of Yahweh in Isaiah 4, 2, the branch of David, Jeremiah 23, the branch of righteousness, the servant branch, as we read in Zechariah chapter 3. Let's compare another scripture that illustrates what we see here in Zechariah. We see from Isaiah 53, 2, For he shall grow up from before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Doesn't this depict to us the sprout? It continues on here in our chapter in Zechariah, the man who shall build the temple of Yahweh. There is an application to both the literal and a spiritual temple appointed by our Father. David was promised both a spiritual temple of a righteous seed as well as a literal building and a throne. 2 Samuel 7, verse 4. He shall build an house for my name and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. Both will be fulfilled in Christ. This is the literal temple of Zion. And as Isaiah 56, 7 says, Even then will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their burnt offerings and sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. For my house should be called a house of prayer for all people. And the spiritual foundation of living stones, as in 1 Peter 2, 5, ye also as lively or living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. It is through Him that our offerings are found acceptable. Joshua was seen in this third chapter of Zechariah in filthy clothing, soiled because of the nature of the work that he had been doing. But now he appears glorified and crowned in this sixth chapter. And of course we can apply this to our Lord and Master. As the seed of Abraham, as that promised seed who would possess the gate of his enemies, who possessed flesh and blood, who was made in all points, tempted in all points likened to his brethren. Despite the obscurity and the humiliation, the shame and crucifixion, he is to be crowned and honored before all mankind at his second coming. He shall sit and rule upon his throne, which has been established as the throne of his father David, as mentioned in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. We see the servant branch of chapter 3 would become the king branch of chapter 6. And so then in verse 13, And he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. To sit in this verse indicates the aspect of a judge or a king whose throne is established in power, in power, complete authority. 
ruling on his throne suggests the extension of the laws and the teachings that will go forth from his administration as the priest of the Most High God and the King of Righteousness. This is a complete fusion, brethren, of the kingly authority and priestly dignity in service to Yahweh as the council of peace shall be between them both. A complete fusion, kingly authority and priestly dignity. And so in verse 15, we finish the chapter, and they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord. Even as we come together at Bible schools and gatherings, we are part part of the remnant of those who are figuratively far off, aren't we? These words in Zechariah 6, verse 15, go far beyond the time of Ezra, Joshua, and Zechariah. They show to us the ultimate glory of all labors and all developing work of God. All mankind is truly afar off, as far as true worship is concerned. In Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. The promises given on the day of Pentecost was an invitation to any who were afar off, it said, to associate with the message of the truth, the hope of the gospel. The building of the literal house of prayer will bring all nations together in one common worship and one common hope. For us, brethren, this is contingent. This is contingent upon the path that we choose in this age. If we diligently obey, as in verse 15, if we diligently obey, obedience on our part is necessary if we're to find a place in this great spiritual temple of our Lord. The words diligently obey give even more importance to what we glean from this lesson. Diligently means to obediently attend to. The word shama, as we mentioned earlier in the exhortation that Dr. Thomas brought to our attention, means to hear intelligently. To hear intelligently. And so, as we read in Deuteronomy 6, verse 3 and 4, it says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee, in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Shama, Ya Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Favor with Yahweh is based upon a common understanding of his purpose, and our character developed by uniting with his character expressed in his name. And that name, as we see in Exodus, E.A. Asher E.A. I will be who I will be. As we look back now at our study of Zechariah, let's consider the spiritual perception that we've gained in this study. Our vision of the future. A picture now more clearly in focus with details highlighted and actuant accentuated. We truly are a blessed people, brothers and sisters, to behold a vision of majesty and might that we 
each of us, through the mercy and forgiveness of our Almighty Father, might be able to partake in. This is all our hope and all our desire, if we can overcome. And as our scripture on the screen says, Revelation 3, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. This is truly precious to us all. The word of Yahweh is truly precious. And precious are we as those who are called according to his purpose. May this week be a week of rest. Rest from the burden of the world around us. But also a week of enlightenment and encouragement as we study, as we grow, as we mark our Bibles, as we take notes and discuss the precious gift that we share. The days are quickly flying, brethren. Is this the last Bible school we will be able to attend? We don't know, do we? Let us make good use of our time this week as we devote ourselves to the Word of Yahweh and strengthen the things that remain. In closing, I'd like for us to consider Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 through 13. And think about the future glory that each of us have the opportunity to attain through the grace of our Heavenly Father. May we, brothers and sisters, be those that make up this multitude that sing these very words. And they sung a new song. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne unto the Lamb forever and ever. Amen.